You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. What do kids have to do with the covenant? Or for that matter, what place do kids have in the covenant community? The church. That's what I want to talk about in today's episode. I want to explain one further feature of our view at resurrection of the church as a covenant community. The covenant, we believe, includes our children just as much as it includes us. That's why at resurrection we regard our children as members with us in the covenant of grace from birth. And fairly soon after their birth, we give them the sign of the covenant, which is, of course, baptism in the New Testament. We welcome our infants into membership of the church right there at the very start of their lives. Now, this warrants a little bit of attention in a church membership class. Welcome, by the way, to episode six of our church membership class via podcast. It uh, warrants this attention uh, because, folks, this is a different view of the church than some traditions have. Indeed, many who've come to us inquiring about membership at Resurrection Presbyterian Church come from those differing church traditions. I'll use myself as an example. Uh, I was a teenager uh, in a Baptist church with my family, and that congregation was an immense blessing to me, very formative in my Christian life. But uh, it was also a congregation in a tradition with a very different view of children than the one we have as Presbyterians. Uh, So in the Baptist tradition, Children are not members of the church from their infancy. That is something that only takes place later. It takes place when they have come to some years, uh, some uh, greater maturity, and they make their profession of faith. That's when they join the church, become members of the church, and are regarded as members of the covenant community. But in a Presbyterian tradition, uh, though we are just as eager for our children eventually to put their own faith in Christ and be able to testify to that publicly, uh, we don't wait to receive them into membership. We gladly and joyfully receive our infants uh, into the membership of the church. Why this difference among differing Christian traditions? Well, friends, it has everything to do with the implications of last episode's Uh, material on covenant, the nature of the covenant of grace. Uh, And we think it's important for uh, prospective members and, of course, current members of Resurrection to know that we believe the children of the church are actually children of the covenant. You'll hear that expression among us Presbyterians. If you're around us long enough, you'll hear that word or phrase, covenant child. I want to talk about what we mean by that. What is a covenant child? What does it mean that we at Resurrection view our children as covenant children? And then I'll talk a little bit about how that impacts our life together as a local church. So, first of all, what does it mean that we at Resurrection, with other fellow Presbyterians, uh, view our children as covenant children? 
Here's how I'll begin to answer that question. Uh, I'll say this, a covenant child, in our way of thinking, is one who enters the world as part of a community of people in covenant with God. Uh, Because he's born to people who are in that covenant relationship with God, he himself is included by God in that covenant relationship. Now, before I go to the scriptures and and try to substantiate uh, that, let me just illustrate. Um, I'll illustrate with the metaphor that Jesus used uh, in his earthly ministry. Jesus spoke of his followers, his disciples, as sheep. We all know that, uh, and we love that analogy. He says, I am the good shepherd, uh, and he speaks of his sheep uh, knowing um, his voice. So the question I would raise by way of illustration is, all right, uh, there's a gathering of sheep. Together they are a flock. Uh, They are followers of the shepherd. Uh, Each individual sheep is a member of the flock. Now the question is, what about when a lamb is born into such a flock? What's the status of that baby sheep? Well, from a shepherd's perspective, I think it's obvious that lamb uh, is as much a member of the flock as his mother is. That lamb is as much a member of that flock, having been born to members of that flock, he's just as much a member of the flock as any other older sheep is. And that is very much what we believe the scripture teaches about our infants, our newborns, our little tykes uh, in the church, our toddlers and the rest. So where do we get this theology in the Bible? Well, uh, the theology begins in the Old Testament. Uh, The children of those in covenant with God in the Old Testament are quite clearly included with them in that relationship with God. Genesis 17 is one I appealed to last week in talking about how covenants work. Let's add this to how covenants work. They include kids. According to Genesis 17, verse 7, God says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, you'll know that the sign that Abraham was to give to his sons to indicate they were in the same covenant relationship with God that he was in was the sign of circumcision. Uh, In the Old Testament, that was the sign of the covenant. Abraham had to be circumcised, and his boys, uh, even as babies, eight days old, we're told in verse 12 of that chapter, they're to be circumcised as well. And uh, by the way, this is something that we could see in all the covenants of the Old Testament that I reviewed last time. There's a lot of emphasis in the Old Testament about children being members of the covenant with their parents. Now, uh, this is probably a good time to acknowledge uh, that there are Christian traditions who don't use the expression covenant child because they believe that that's a concept and a category that belongs only in the Old Testament. It's not part 
of the New Testament's teaching. So, for example, many of them would agree with everything I've said just thus far about kids being included in the covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, But folks, there are differences among Christian traditions about how different the New Testament is from the Old Testament, how different the New Covenant is from all the covenants that came before. And some of our uh, brothers and sisters believe that there's something radically different in this respect about the New Testament and the New Covenant, i.e., you can no longer be born into a covenant relationship with God as a child. The only ones in covenant with God in the New Testament, according to many Christians, are those who have come to that place of personally uh, experiencing and professing their faith in Christ. So, now you may understand a little bit better uh, why some congregations practice what's called infant baptism as well as adult baptism, and others only practice adult baptism. Uh, That difference comes down to this. We all agree that baptism is the sign of membership in the New Covenant, but we don't all agree on whether our children are still born into a covenant relationship with God or not. We all agree that baptism should be given to adult converts to Christianity. We all agree on that, but we don't all agree on whether the children of those adult converts should also, with them, be baptized. So, uh, this is the crux of the matter in my judgment that separates certain traditions over the question of baptism, but more uh, basically the state of children uh, in relation to the covenant. The question is, really the crux of the matter is, are our children included with us in the covenant since Christ has come and established that new covenant? I actually think this is the fundamental question in our debates about infant baptism and about whether they're members of the church or not, or should be. Um, That's the fundamental question. Is this an area where the Old Testament and the New Testament are alike? They both include children uh, in the covenant that God makes with us? Or is this one of the differences? And we all acknowledge there are differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. Friends, this is where I want uh, those sitting in on our uh, resurrection membership class to know uh, that Presbyterians are those who see continuity, as we call it, in this area between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We believe that there's something um, continuous between the Old Testament and New Testament in terms of the status of children born to believing parents. Now, where do we get our conviction That nothing has changed in that key respect, that our children in the New Testament are just as much members with us of the covenant of grace from their birth uh, as in the Old Testament. Well, I can't answer the question in all the thoroughness that it deserves. Uh, I have written, actually, a little paper that 
uh, maps out how I went from being in a Baptist church to pastoring a Presbyterian church and my convictions in this area. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, notes for this episode. But let me just give you a feel for the kinds of Bible passages that we think are particularly significant in pointing to a continuing reality that children, our kids, are still members of the covenant with us in the New Testament, even from birth. So here's one kind of passage. Uh, It's Isaiah 59. I'll begin at verse 20. And this is an example of a prophet who's announcing the coming of the new covenant. I talked about this last time. And he's announcing the coming of the new covenant in terms that seem clearly to indicate kids are still included. Isaiah 59, verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, the language that's being used here to describe God's making a covenant is so very typical of all the language in the Old Testament of God's covenant making. It's with us and with our children and even with our children's children. And that's very unexceptional or un, um, uh, noteworthy, except that Isaiah is talking about the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus is going to bring. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, he says. And we see Isaiah talking about the new covenant in the same terms as the old covenants in this respect. It includes our kids. I could also have turned you to Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 39. I could have turned you to Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 27, for other examples of prophets who announce the new covenant as something that includes kids. Uh, Fast forward with me now to our Lord's own ministry, Jesus' ministry, and I'm thinking of Luke chapter 18, and there's also a parallel passage in Matthew 19, but this is a significant passage to us Presbyterians uh, for persuading us that our children uh, are rightly to be included with us uh, in the covenant community, given the sign of the covenant and their membership in it. Luke 18, verse 15 Now, they, talking about parents among Jesus' disciples, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, I've preached a whole sermon on this passage that I can't uh, say, uh, I can't repeat in all its detail. Uh, Suffice it to say, um, 
folks, if Jesus here says that the kingdom belongs to kids, we would submit that certainly the covenant also belongs to kids. The new covenant, the one that Jesus is inaugurating in his earthly ministry. Uh, Remember last time, the kingdom is the big agenda of God in the world to defeat all of his enemies. Uh, And the primary means that he uses is covenants. He makes covenants with uh, whole communities throughout history in order to advance his kingdom. So if the kingdom belongs to our children, certainly the means to the bringing about of the kingdom belongs to them. I'm arguing from the greater to the lesser. Uh, We could look at uh, the apostles' ministry, uh, their proclaiming of the new covenant. Uh, In Acts 2, uh, something that Peter says uh, is of great interest to Presbyterians in our view of our children. Verse 38, uh, Peter's preaching and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he says this, for the promise, I'll interrupt myself and say, in biblical terms, you can't talk about God's promise apart from the concept of covenant. Covenant is uh, made by the promises of God. So, back to my passage, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, Peter is preaching the good news. He's offering membership in the new covenant in this gospel message. And uh, we believe that he says something old and something new, if you will. In other words, he says something that has always been the case in God's covenant making. And then he's also saying something that's gloriously new and improved about the new covenant. What's the old What's the always has been? Well, he says, the promise is for you and for your children. Folks, that's wonderfully, gloriously, same old, same old. That's how it's always been. Uh, Every Jew listening to him would recognize that is what God said to our father Abraham, the promises to you and to your children. So apparently that continues, but there's also something wonderfully, gloriously new He continues, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I submit to you, that is the glorious new element of the new covenant. The new covenant is going to be explosively bigger and more expansive to include not just Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, but Gentiles as well. But we see in Peter's words confirmation that in the new covenant, uh, our kids— are also with us in covenant with God. Uh, One other kind of passage is taken, might be easy to overlook it in this respect, but from Paul's teaching, uh, Ephesians 6, um, there's another passage I could also bring up in 1 Corinthians 7 that um, parallels this, but I'm going to refer to Ephesians 6 as an example of Paul's teaching that the new covenant community includes our kids, our children. Uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. You remember how he's begun. He, he, talks, he starts the letter to the Ephesians, to the saints in Ephesus. We talked last time about how the word saint 
is a covenantal term. It's someone who's set apart to be in covenant with God. So he has identified who he's writing to in his letter to the Ephesians, the saints at Ephesus. And then, as you know, he begins to single out the saints according to their station in life. He talks to husbands and wives. He talks to masters and servants. And in Ephesians 6 verse 1, he says, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he goes on to quote the fifth commandment, um, on your father and your mother. Now, what's the significance of uh, Paul singling out the kids of the church in his letter to the congregation? Well, he obviously had a pastoral concern for them. And by the way, this is Uh, What I have resolved to do in my preaching at Resurrection is to single out the kids from time to time, Uh, hopefully in each sermon, some specific reference to the kids, just to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in his written sermons in the New Testament. But folks, here's the big deal. Paul has said, I'm writing to the saints. And then in Ephesians 6.1, he identifies children as those who are among the saints. Who are the saints at Ephesus? Well, they include masters and servants. The saints in Ephesus include husbands and wives. And the saints, the ones set apart in covenant with God, include the kids, Paul says, children. Obey your parents, for this is right. Now, these are evidences that we see that God is continuing to include in the New Testament, no less than the Old our children with us in the covenant relationship that he's made with us. And by the way, this is very encouraging to us. We love this teaching uh, of the scripture. Let me scratch one more possible itch, though, uh, that some who've thought about this subject uh, and um, might not be convinced uh, thus far of uh, the New Testament's Uh, continuity with the Old Testament uh, in including kids. Uh, And I'll I'll say that that comes from an understanding that one of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, one of the differences many Christians believe between the two is that the Old Covenant included those who were saved as well as those who were unsaved. That was true of the Old Covenant, but many have thought that's not true of the New Covenant. The New Covenant, according to many people's thinking, is only a covenant made with real, genuine believers. Now, I appreciate uh, that concern because Christians who disagree with us, Presbyterians, that our children are born uh, into covenant with God— Uh, They're not anti-children. They love their children as much as we do. They are committed as we are to providing Christian parenting. They just believe that this is one of the differences. The New Testament only includes, pardon me, I keep saying the New Testament, or the New Covenant only includes those who are really saved. And their logic is, we can't know for sure whether a baby is saved or whether a baby will be saved. So we can't baptize them and bring them into the covenant until they are older and can make a personal profession of faith. Now, I appreciate that logic, uh, but I want you to notice the view of the new covenant. 
uh, that is clearly there. Uh, in that view, to be in covenant with God, at least now, unlike the Old Testament, is another way of saying to be saved. The New Testament covenant, pardon me, the New Testament covenant community, in that view, consists only of those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's interesting. Everything that I laid out for you and showed you from the scripture last week about how there are two possible responses to God uh, in covenant with us. There's covenant keeping that's possible, and there's covenant breaking there's, that's possible. There's two outcomes of the covenant. Remember that from last week? Uh, the outcome of, the, of covenant breaking is God's judgment. The outcome of covenant keeping is God's blessing. Well, this view that I am pointing to, that many Christians have, uh, takes away the whole uh, one half of that dynamic of the covenant, at least here in the new covenant age. And I've heard some of my Baptist brothers actually affirm that quite strongly. There is no such thing as covenant breaking in the New Testament or in the new covenant era. Well, folks, I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches about the New Covenant. I think it actually includes evidence. The New Testament includes evidence that there still remains both sides of the covenant, both kinds of responses to God that can bring either covenant blessing or covenant curses. I won't turn to 1 Corinthians 10, but I think... That's an example of the apostle speaking to the Corinthians in that place, giving them the same uh, or warning them along the same lines as the warnings of the Old Testament. Um, They're in a relationship with God by covenant, but they must not follow the example of some of their fathers who are in covenant with God, lest they fall under God's judgment. So 1 Corinthians 10 is an example of that, for, uh, verses 1 to 6, but I will read to you from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is a passage uh, that I think makes very clear uh, that there is such a thing as covenant breaking in the New Testament era. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Folks, I'm aware that's a very grim passage, uh, and I'm simply citing this uh, to make the point that we as Presbyterians don't believe uh, that the new covenant cannot be broken. We see evidence here that uh, there is the possibility of both covenant keeping and covenant breaking in the new covenant as well. I could turn to other passages uh, like John 15 or 1 John 2 or 2 Peter 2 uh, to further emphasize that. But why is this all relevant or significant? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Friends, when Presbyterians speak of their children as covenant children, and when they give them the sign of the covenant, baptism, it is not as if we're saying, whew, 
hooray, our children are saved now. That's not what we're saying. That's not our understanding uh, of their membership in the covenant. What we are saying as we include our children in the covenant with us and give them the sign uh, of the covenant baptism from their very earliest days is that they are, by God's grace, in a position, a place of special privilege and, as well, special responsibility. Our children are privileged to be born into an earthly family of God, the joys is blessing, and our children are from that very uh, same moment responsible before God to live up to those privileges by exercising their own faith and showing forth their own obedience. Uh, salvation is the result of those who are in covenant with God, loving him and serving him. And that's the outcome of the covenant with God that he loves, that we celebrate, and that we're seeking for our kids. But we're aware that just because our children are in covenant with God doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go to heaven. There's that other side of the covenant that the Scripture, Old and New Testament, speaks of. And there is judgment, to be sure, that awaits those who are in covenant with God, but never respond to him with personal saving faith and sincere obedience. Folks, that's why godly parenting has such a vital role in the covenant keeping of a covenant community. Uh, We can't just have babies. Uh, We have to nurture them in their covenant relationship with God. We must lead them to Christ as parents, as pastors and elders, and as a whole covenant community so that they personally trust him and commit themselves to him. This isn't new, however. This is always the way it's been. Genesis 18, verse 19, God says, I have chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. All right. Well, once again, you might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose as I give you a little bit more uh, covenant theology, if you will, as it applies to our children. By the way, I know these are weighty things, especially if it's the first time uh, some one or more of my listeners is considering this. And I would just say to you, uh, in all encouragement, if this understanding of children, even our infants, as members of the church and the covenant community is new to you, well, uh, take the time uh, to noodle on it, as we say, uh, to chew on this, to compare what I'm saying to the scriptures always. I can uh, recommend some books to you on the subject of Children of the Covenant. I did in the last episode. Um, I certainly am uh, eager to talk with you further about this subject. Uh, And I'll just note that earlier in the Resurrection Life podcast last year, I think it is by now, uh, as part of my series on parenting, uh, I worked through these issues in even greater detail, uh, how we view as Presbyterians our children uh, as in covenant with God. You could look for episodes six, seven, 
8 and 9 and even episode 10 uh, in that parenting series. It's part of the warp and woof, whatever that is, of our life together as a church to consider our children as in covenant with God just as much as we are. So let me spend the rest of our time asking, what is the practical effect of all this on our life uh, as a church? Here are three things that I'll say in a summary way. Number one, we view the children of the church as loved by God and part of his covenant family with us. Our children have the same relationship with God in covenant that we have. God loves them just like he loves us. God is blessing them the same way he's blessing us. And notice, quite significantly, God is calling them to trust and obey him in the same way he's calling us. So, folks, we call them covenant children because we believe that they're born into a love relationship with God. And that's what gives us, we believe, rock-solid reasons, for example, for telling them that God loves them with a special love from the very beginning of their life, for describing all the good things in their life as God's covenant blessings, his blessings for them specially as members of his covenant. We teach them to talk to God like someone they know, their Father in heaven, indeed, the same way we do. And we include them in our worship and our fellowship with God. We insist that they act like Christians because they're part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't a relationship with God depend upon our children repenting and believing? So don't we need to wait and see if they do that before we tell them they have a love relationship with God? And the answer in a word is no. No. We believe our children are born into a loving relationship with God long before they even understand or have a clue. They're in a covenant relationship with God whether they believe it or not. Here's the thing. That covenant relationship will only bring them to salvation if they respond to their covenant God in true faith. And if, God forbid, they never respond in true faith. Is that because there was never a relationship between them and God? Well, to the contrary, there was a relationship. God had brought them into covenant with him, but it proved to be, tragically, a very one-sided relationship. We talk about unreciprocated love, don't we? And um, that's uh, an example of such. So here's our great desires, whether it's as Christian parents at resurrection or as a whole congregation at resurrection. It's that our children repent and believe and obey, and we nurture these things in our children as a response to God's love shown to them in covenant. So we don't say, children, you should trust and obey so that you can have a relationship with God like me. Rather, we say, children, you should trust and obey God because you have a relationship with God like me. He loves you like he loves me. He's, promi- he's made promises to you as he's made promises to me, and he wants you to love him back, kids, just like he wants me to love him back. Isn't that the logic, my friends, of the whole scripture? 
We love him because he first loved us. So that's number one. We view the children of the church as loved by God and part of his covenant family just as much as we are. Number two, we treat the children of the church as disciples of Christ from the very start. You need to know this about resurrection as well. Think about it. In our Lord's ministry, a disciple of Christ was known by two things. Ordinarily, ordinarily, both were necessary. One was that he was baptized into Jesus Christ. It was a sign of his having a relationship with him. So baptism was a sign of a disciple. But then there was another sign, and that was something more ongoing. It was a day-by-day following after Christ and listening and learning from him. Now, one of those two things is rather objective and concrete. Baptism, it's a pretty objective event. The other is a more, much more subjective thing. Uh, people who are following and listening and learning from Christ. But those two things together is what makes someone a disciple of Christ. Jesus names those two things, indeed, when he gives his famous great commission, and he tells uh, his disciples to make more disciples, and he names these two things. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You hear the two things. So, the act of baptism makes someone a disciple in a very objective and definitive way, but it's actually flowing from that a whole life of receiving and heeding instruction, the instruction of the Lord that makes someone a disciple in that more subjective way. My point here is that congregations with a covenantal perspective see their children as disciples of Christ in both of those ways. Uh, They've been baptized (laughs) as soon as they've um, gotten good and presentable, you might say. But they're also being taught how to be a Christian, how to be a follower of Christ. If they're not disciples, well, what else are they? They're baptized and they're being taught. Notice in the same order in which Jesus commands it in the Great Commission. So, uh, we believe that that really is bringing the notion of a Christian family into its fullest uh, formation. Our families are Christian families in that every member is baptized and every member is being taught to follow Christ. They're all together learning daily how to be like Christ. By the way, that's why membership in Presbyterian churches is by household. Sometimes the household is one person, to be sure. Other times it's a husband and wife. And other times it's husband and wife and their children with them. Membership in Presbyterian churches is by household, and we get that from the Bible as well. We won't turn to all these passages, but that's what we see is happening. And for example, Acts 10, when Cornelius's family is baptized, or when Lydia's household is baptized in Acts 16, <clears throat> or when the Philippian jailer's whole household is baptized in Acts chapter 16 as well, or when the household of Stephanus is spoken of as having been baptized, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we treat the children of the church 
as disciples of Christ from the start. They are, in spiritual terms, in covenantal terms, they are our little brothers and sisters from the very beginning. One more thing I'll say, the practical implications of our view of kids as members of the covenant. Folks, we call the children of the church to live up to who they are as members of the covenant. I elaborate on this a great deal more in my talk on parenting earlier in this series, because parents are doing this on a daily fashion, but a whole congregation is likewise joining with parents uh, in calling the children of the church, pastors, elders, uh, the spiritual aunts and uncles of that congregation. And the call of the church to our children is like the call of Paul uh, to, for example, the members of the church in Corinth. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, or it's the same word, sanctified or set apart. What I think is so significant here is that the apostle is saying two things. He's saying there's a bunch of you people in Corinth who have been set apart in Christ Jesus in covenant relationship with God, but you're also called to be that. You're called, in other words, to live up to your standing as those who were set apart in covenant with God. Uh, so that's how we actually communicate uh, the call of the gospel to all the members of the church, young and old. But it's also how we think of and uh, relate to the children of the church. Uh, you're a child of the covenant. Uh, so we're calling on you to act like a child of the covenant. Or as the apostle puts it in another place, walk worthy of your calling, <clears throat> we um, we sometimes talk about uh, well, in the words of Matthew Henry, one of the most famous commentators on the scriptures. We sometimes talk about grabbing our kids by their baptism. <laughs> That's an expression Matthew Henry uses, and what he means by that is he's saying to uh, children of the covenant, hey. You have been set apart, so that calls for a certain kind of conduct. Certainly, most basically, it calls for putting your faith in Christ. It looks like all that faith produces, that's real and genuine faith, of uh, obedience to Christ. So, folks, for us, that's the kind of covenantal context for elements of our church life that are actually very common to many, many churches, even of different traditions. We have a Sunday school program at Resurrection for our children. We have a youth group at Resurrection for our children. Um, members of the Congregation of Resurrection some years ago uh, also started a Christian academy, Greyfriars Classical Tutorials and Greyfriars Classical Academy. And these all, in their own right, are part of our self-aware mission uh, to call our kids to live up to who they are as members of the covenant and, of course, to equip them uh, for service in the kingdom. Let me say that uh, Resurrection Presbyterian Church is not a child-centered church. 
When I say that, I simply have in mind the fact that there seem to be many churches that are convinced that the way uh, to be as a church is to center everything on a very young demographic of the church, maybe the teenagers, maybe the very, very young adults. And um, we certainly are burdened to reach our children and teens and young adults. But uh, Resurrection is seeking to lead uh, all in the church who are young uh, into more and more maturity and to lead them to more mature church life and experience and uh, experience of the covenant. So we're not child-centered any more than we want our homes to be child-centered. But I will say, and I love this about Resurrection, uh, we are a very child-mindful church. Uh, this is probably one of the first impressions that you had if you've visited Resurrection, uh, that there's a lot of kids, for example, in our congregation, uh, and that they are very, very present. Um, we include them uh, in our worship and our fellowship. We have a nursery for those in the very earliest stages when it is difficult to sit still in church, but we encourage our families to work towards including uh, even their young children in what we're doing as we gather. And it's for this very important, uh, I will say, theological uh, reason. What we're doing as we gather as the Church of Jesus Christ uh, is that we are renewing our covenant relationship with God, and our children are part of that covenant relationship. So the grace of our gatherings is for them as well. They have a right to be a part of that. And God loves to hear their praise uh, just as much as he does those most mature and most old in their faith. We never want to convey to any of our children, no matter how young they are, that there is some kind of age requirement or some kind of height requirement or some kind of intellectual requirement to be in covenant with God. We never want to convey that. Contrary to that, we want to include our children in the experience of God's covenant blessings in our community. I was visiting with uh, one of our young families uh, just last night, actually, as I record this. And uh, there's two little boys, uh, one who's three and a half and uh, one who's one, I think. Maybe two now, two now. Uh, but uh, it was fun to hear about the parenting and to hear about the uh, progress in those little boys' lives. And uh, at one point, um, the comment was made that uh, the, there are certain parts of worship uh, that are the favorite of this little three-year-old. They're the parts that are most familiar because we do them every week, uh, like the Gloria Patri. We sing glory be to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, that uh, ancient doxology. And this little boy likes to run around the house singing the Gloria Patri because he's memorized it by now. And folks, I just encourage you to think when our littlest people uh, can enter into what we're doing in worship uh, as uh, wholeheartedly as this little boy singing out the part that he knows uh, well, 
That's a glorious thing. It's pleasing in God's eyes. And it's just profoundly right. Because that little boy is a part of that covenant community, just like his mom and dad. And God is his God, his covenant Lord, just as much as he is that of his parents. Well, I think you can see how this would have a cultural effect on a congregation, which is why I've singled it out for an episode uh, to talk talk about the kids uh, of the covenant. I dare say that um, as we move forward, it might come as some relief to you. Uh, We will be moving into things a little lighter, (laughs) at least in terms of the theological and exegetical uh, material. Uh, We're going to be uh, taking up next time how the covenant community is to be a nurturing community. It is the church that is our mother in that sense in which Cyprian uh, meant it in that um, quote that I gave you a little while ago. What we want to look at is what kind of nurture you can expect if you become part of Resurrection Presbyterian Church. You have a right to expect to be nurtured uh, in your faith and life as a Christian, as part of local church. So we want to talk about next time what that looks like. And just be uh, aware, after that, we're going to talk about what you would be expected to provide to the rest of the body uh, in order that the body continue to be a nurturing community uh, should you become part of it. Well, uh, that will suffice uh, for today. Brothers and sisters, I trust that the Lord is blessing and keeping you uh, all in his grace. And I remind you yet again, be encouraged. Christ is risen. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us.